1 Corinthians 8, Paul is moving now into a new section. Right in verse 1, he'll begin by saying, Now concerning things offered to idols. And we had spoken, the Corinthians had apparently written him a letter where they've asked certain questions. He addressed other issues in the beginning of his letter to them. Now, earlier, he, he, he began to address some of those issues they wrote to him about. He was speaking about marriage, singleness, uh, intimacy within marriage, some of those issues. Now he's shifting and beginning here in verse 1, he's going to talk about issues in relation to food sacrifice to idols, which was part of the next question they had. Positively, there are things to correct here, but positively what this does tell us is in the church, apparently there was a segment of people with tender consciences who really wanted to please the Lord, and they were worried that some of the things they were doing were not pleasing to the Lord. Uh, it also tells us there was some type of dispute within the church where people thought it was okay and people thought it wasn't okay. So um, there was an issue in the end, but at least there was a segment there that really wanted to please the Lord. This discussion is really going to run all the way through to chapter 11. And in some ways it might not seem very applicable to us, but it was something that had a ton of different angles in the early church. So Paul continue, continually had to kind of deal with this question of food and then how we act in relation to food. So in Acts chapter 15, particularly in relation to the church of Antioch, it was in relation to the Judaizers and the Jewish law. Did they have to keep the dietary law? Should they eat things that still have the blood in them? It was kind of more of a religious connotation. Then in Romans 14, we see him talking to more of a Gentile kind of segment, and that was in relation to whether they should be vegetarians, whether they should keep certain festivals still, and that became a matter of conscience, and he had to talk to them through that issue. And now here in Corinth, the issue of food comes up again, but it has another slant, and it seems like the main problem happening here is not only whether they would eat the meat that was offered, but the fact that it was sacrificed to idols and they were then participating in these kind of festivals or worship services where they would then receive some of the meat sacrificed to idols. So typically what would happen is when that sacrifice was given, a portion of that would be given to the god. Zeus would get his portion. Then another portion of that would be given to the person who offered the sacrifice, and they would have something to eat. And then that last portion, whatever was left over, would either be sold at a market or even cooked there at the temple and offered as kind of a pseudo-ancient restaurant where they could then go there and eat. You could eat as it was kind of just given to you. So the, the believers had issues do we eat that at all? Can we buy it from the market? And can we go participate in these kind of feasts? And, you know, hey, all Zeus's temple, they're cooking lamb today. It's Wednesday. Can we meet there and get something to eat and then go do whatever? So there was, there was all these kind of issues around this in the church. Paul had forget, forbidden them in chapter 5, 10, 11 to fellowship with idolaters. So they're trying to work this out. He's going to tell them clearly in chapter 10, verse 20, don't participate in their feasts. 
They're demonic. He's going he's gonna to say that pretty clearly. Although he will also say it's not a sin to just buy some meat from the market and eat it. So he, he's going to kind of make a couple really focused points on the issue. But the thing that I think is important for us, and I kind of why I kind of want to run through the whole intro here, is to see, even though we might not have a particular symptom of worrying about meat sacrifice to idols, you don't go to the grocery store and pick up the meat on sale and say, I hope they didn't kill this for Zeus, you know. That's not our life. Uh, it is still other places in the world. Missionaries, this becomes very applicable. But in America, this is not really our main kind of issue. The, the underlying principles that Paul brings out to deal with the issue are universal. Those are the things that last and that are still important for us today. So even though we can't immediately maybe apply this to something we're eating because we're worried it was given to a false god, the, the things that he's going to say in relation to that do immediately apply to us. So what's important for us is to notice where he starts. So again, let's begin verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as yet he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Paul starts here by addressing their forgetfulness of Christian love. He knows where he's going already. He's going to make clear statements. Don't go to the demonic festivals. It's okay if you eat that meat. We know idols aren't real. He's going to say theological truths. But what he does before he addresses any of those things is he goes to these underlying principles of what the Christian and the Christian life is really supposed to be. And then he works off of that, all these other angles he's going to come to. And I think it's important for us, Paul knows, as it was true for his day, it's true today, that one of the most powerful things, not only for unsaved people, but for believers, even after salvation, is the fellowship of the body of Christ. Crazier the world gets, the more remarkable it is to have people who love one another in the way Christ commands, who live a type of life that the way Christ commands. And it's a blessing to know that you can do that with other people. And there was a richness to that fellowship even then that they didn't want broken up. And it was a testimony that even unsaved people who came into their midst should recognize God is in this place. And Paul knows this type of attitude is going to be something that begins to break that down. That the first commandment is still loving God and loving those around us. And Christ's new commandment to his disciples is that we would love one another in a particular way, the way he loved us, then the world would know that we're his disciples. So before he gets into the end, any of the facts, he's going to start with, hey, here's something that you're missing in this whole discussion. The basis of Christian love. What Christian life is supposed to look like. And he wants to show that these Corinthians have erred in their response to the issue because they've erred in their judgment of what's most important. They thought knowledge was most what was most important. 
And the aim of our faith is not knowledge, it's love. Knowledge becomes a part of love. We're supposed to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. That's just one part. And it's all supposed to work together in harmony. All the knowledge we acquire should just be added fuel to the love God commands us to have. Love is the fruit of the Spirit, what he wants to see in our lives. It's what's supposed to guide us, not merely our knowledge. So to prove this, what Paul does is right in the beginning, he sets up two contrasts. The first is very clear. Notice again in verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And then secondly, this one's a little less clear, but the learner is actually unknown to himself, and the one who loves is fully known of God. So he's going to set up two contrasts here between love and knowledge. And right off the bat, he admits, hey, look, we know that we all have knowledge. That's what he says in verse 1. I know you guys know things. You've gotten saved. You've received truth. You have the word of God. You know things about God and the supernatural world. You know things now about yourselves and the natural world. Before, you were caught up in all types of worldly philosophies, things that were totally untrue. Now you have truth in Jesus Christ. You have knowledge, things that you can rest on. But Paul, an intellectual himself, gives a clear contrast saying, Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The word puffs up there has the idea of being inflated with a bellows. It's not a great picture. We say somebody's got a big head, their ego is inflated, right? That's that's still kind of the picture. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies, the idea is builds up. Knowledge puffs an individual up, love edifies, builds up the person. And this contrast can be perceived as anti-intellectual because in some sense it is. (laughs) What Paul's saying here is, and what the Holy Spirit is warning through Paul, that there's a direct danger for knowledge seekers, which is pride and a lack of love. Now, he speaks, and the word speaks, in unique ways to other people. Like, knowledge and intellect is a gift. Beauty is a gift. But the Proverbs warn, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. And a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. There are unique warnings given to a person who tries to leverage their beauty for themselves. There are unique warnings given to the rich man. It's hard for you to get in the kingdom of heaven. And it's easy for you to trust in your riches and not in God. And that you should liberally give and not just receive and build up for yourselves barns that you know are going to not be here or not be yours when you leave very soon there's unique warnings given to the person who has strength in one way or another not to use it for ourselves again not to trust in the arm of the flesh in in all types of different gifts in the scriptures there are unique warnings given in relation to those particular gifts and what paul says here to the knowledge to the person who wants to grow in knowledge, knowing things, hey, look, here's what knowledge does. It puffs up. It feeds pride. Love will build up. And we need to beware. Paul knows this was the danger because he was that person. 
Paul was the ultimate prideful intellectual. There was no intellectual argument you could give to the man Saul that would have converted him. He would have never been convinced. He would have never been argued into it. It was a spiritual experience with Jesus Christ that took Saul to Paul. It was something happened to him. He didn't come to understand something with his mind. He, he was that person. And all his knowledge, all his learning, all it did for him was puff him up, make him hard, make him loveless towards the truth. And, I, you know, maybe there's some people in here, people that are listening. This is one of the gifts God has given you, but we need to weigh that danger. Another intellectual, C.S. Lewis, said this in his book, The Weight of Glory, the intellectual life is not the only road to God, nor the safest, but we find it to be a road, and it may be the appointed road for us. Of course, it will be only so long as we keep the impulse pure and disinterested. That is the great difficulty. As the author of Theologia Germanica says, we may come to love knowledge, our knowledge, more than the thing known. To delight not in the exercise of our talents, but in the fact that they are ours, or even in the reputation they bring us. Every success in the scholar's life increases this danger. If it becomes irresistible, he must give up his scholarly work. The time for the plucking out of the right eye has arrived. Knowledge puffs up. One begins to desire to know well instead of live well. They live a think life instead of actual life. They can love learning truth without loving love, as is pictured here, the contrast. Can love knowledge because of what it brings us in terms of position and reputation and prestige and wealth. In fact, a lot of us probably have more knowledge than we know what to do with need more obedience to catch up with our knowledge or courage or faith. And eventually the, the problem is what we see in a lot of realms is literal knowledge, human reason overtakes revelation. The mind of man literally in authority over the mind of God. And unfortunately all that's simply a fruit of pride. Now that doesn't have to happen, but it is likely in many cases to happen, and it is the warning that is given in relation to that. There are people that are wonderful, bright, gifted individuals who use their knowledge to love God and to help others. You know, some great scholarly folks that make up tools that help other people learn and love God. There, this doesn't have to be the case, but what Paul already sees in this scenario is that these Corinthians who love their knowledge are exalting their knowledge over actual loving behavior toward other Christian brothers and sisters. So right off the bat, he's got to say, here's, here's the underlying issue. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, love builds up, 
First John 4, 7 through 8 would say, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love here is the true measure of our knowledge. If we think we're growing in our knowledge of God, but we're not proportionally growing in our love for other people, we're deceiving ourselves. That's what John is telling us. Now, no, you know, most of us here are not like intellectuals or going to be called to even be intellectuals. That's not what we're supposed to do. But one way or another, all of us are in positions at times in life where you will have more knowledge than other folks. Other people you're interacting with, you are going to know more than them on some issue or some place or something in particular. So certainly the principle comes down to us one way or another. In here, it was very important, particularly for these folks who exalted knowledge in such a such a out-of-proportion way, which Paul had already kind of dealt with somewhat in the earlier chapters. The question, I think, that comes to us is, am I building up those around me? Am I loving those around me? Or has my knowledge led me to this place where I am actually doing the opposite? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Paul says, here's the first problem. Here's the first thing I have to say to you guys. Before we talk about demonic idol worship, (laughs) knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's something easy. It's an easy measuring stick. It could be a convicting measuring stick, but it's an easy one. And the second contrast, again, a bit harder to see, though, is this, that between thinking you know yourself and actually being known of God. Verse 2, if anyone thinks that he knows anything... He knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. (laughs) You think you know anything? You don't know what you need to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by God. Paul here is warning the person who thinks they know everything, or at least everything about something. And most people don't claim to know everything, even though they have a lot of opinions on just about everything. But they're like, you know, but I got my thing. I know this thing. And nobody should tell me anything about this thing. Right? These are the people who we, maybe in our language we would say, they're in the know. Right? And they have some way to prove that they're in the know, whether it's their life experience or their doctorates, right? the degrees that they have. And then what you have is this kind of intellectual caste system where your idea can't really be taken seriously if you don't have what we consider to be a measurement of being in the know. Jesus, the Pharisees looked at him and said, this guy, he doesn't know our letters. He didn't go through our schools. He doesn't have our learning. Who is this guy? He, he was on a lower rung of the caste system, the intellectual caste system. And again, it's not just degrees. It could be anything, really. It's a they versus us. There's the circle The circle has somehow been defined. We find it in politics. You'll find it in education. You'll find it with doctors. You'll find it in the theological edges of the church. You came through this school. You're approved. You got the stamp of approval by some man-made institution. Therefore, you're in the know. 
and those people then think that they know. And if you think you know, there's always people who don't know. Right? There's the they, and there's the us. And particularly if I had to pay a price to get into the they, you know, or out of the they, into the us, then I want everybody else to have to pay that price too. So there's, there's always this pressure here, which was part of what was happening in Corinth. We already know that from earlier in the book where there were people who, there, these, these become kind of echo chambers. Your ideas are, are the ones you just bounce around with everybody else who agrees with your idea, and you're like, oh, yeah, you know. And then that's how they began to split up. Well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, we, they like their particular form of wisdom. We're in the know with them. I'm going to claim this piece to them. You guys are outside of this. And Paul says there's always those people who think that they know, but he says they're actually living in ignorance. You don't actually know yourself as clearly as you think you do. You should be able to admit that you don't know. In contrast to the person who walks in love to God and man, even if that person doesn't see themselves clearly all the time, they are known by God. We can allow our knowledge to cause us to have this defense. Uh, C.S. Lewis, again, talks about one of a professor he names just Dr. Quartz. And he said Dr. Quartz was a wonderful individual. In fact, everybody talked about what a wonderful professor he was. It was almost hero worship at the school that he was at. And his door was always open, and you could go and talk with him, and his students was, were always voting him some of the favorite professors. And he said, but one, one thing would always happen. He said, after they graduated and they had their own kind of level of understanding of things, he said, that door to his house would always be open. And he said, until one day, the door would be closed, and Dr. Quartz would be indisposed. And he said every day after that, he would be indisposed. Because at some point, when the students' thoughts became independent, something other than what the professor's thoughts were, he wasn't such a loving guy anymore. He loved you because he said what he wanted, and you agreed with him, and you're a part of his circle. But the minute you walked out of that, Dr. Kors wasn't so welcoming anymore. And as Christians... The same thing can kind of happen to us. We can have our own thoughts and versions of things. But do we really love God that way? Do we really love those around us that way? It's always defended by what we know. But Paul says the person who thinks that they know anything, they don't really know what they ought to know. But... If anyone loves God, and if you love God, you'll love man. That's what John says. If I claim to love God, but I can't love the people who are in front of me, how can I say I love God who I haven't seen? I don't even love the people I can see. Again, if you don't love the people that are right around you, but you think you love God, you deceive yourself. And Paul says this one is known by God. They're known through and through. He knows their true motive. He knows their true purpose. And he knows them in a way that is favorable. Exodus 33, 
Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found grace in my sight. So the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. When God says he knows you, he knows you in way of approval. Moses is like, I don't even know what to say to people. He's admitting his ignorance. I don't know everything. What do you want me to say? What are you going to do? How are you going to go with me? You just said that you know me, and I found grace in your sight. And he just repeats that. I know you, Moses. I'll be with you. And you found grace in my sight. We want to be people that are known of God. He knows what our true motive is. Some, some people, they can't see themselves the way that God sees them because of their insecurities or their pride in one way or another. We want to love God and be known of him. And so Paul wants these Corinthians who have issues because of their knowledge and who are basing their behavior off their knowledge and acting in ways that are totally unloving to the other believers around them to realize, hey, you need to see this first before we talk about any facts. You need to understand this before I get into anything else here. And again, to be clear, knowledge isn't irrelevant. Doctrinal positions are not irrelevant. They're all very important for us, but they don't serve as the primary basis for Christian behavior or fellowship, particularly in matters of conscience, which we're going to see largely here. Although not all matters of conscience, because he's going to command them a certain things. So we should hold all our beliefs in Christian love. Even if I come across another Christian who doesn't believe something directly that I do, what should my heart be toward that person? Or you're going to run into other believers that maybe they're going to believe something different about infant baptism or pre or post trib, or they're going to be more Calvinistic, or you know, you're going to believe in women pastors or not women pastors. Okay, so that's fine. But how should my behavior and my heart be toward that person, particularly if I think they're wrong? Well, just because I have facts doesn't mean I have a right not to be loving toward those people, even if I'm in the right. And if I'm in the right, I should care even more and see them with compassion if they're in the wrong and if I believe they're in the wrong, because I believe that's something harmful in their life. So... Paul wants to set that straight first before he jumps into any of the facts. Now, he jumps into the facts and he says this, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no God but one. Paul is addressing the issue head on and he's going to instruct them. So he says right off the bat, look, we know here. Here's what we know. There's only one God in the world. And none of the idols that they see or that they know actually exists. An idol is nothing. The idea is there is literally nothing, no real existence behind any man-made idol or God. Anything man has made up since the beginning of time, there is nothing there behind that. It is literally a figment of human imagination. There is no true God in existence behind those things. Dagon, not there. Baal, nothing there. 
There is no Anubis. There's no Allah. There's no other man-made God out there other than the one true God of the Bible. There is no divinity out there anywhere. Zeus isn't there. Diana isn't there. Any of the gods, 300 million Hindu gods, none of them are there. You can stack them all up through human history. Human beings made things up, threw them together, and there's nothing there. An idol is literally nothing in the world. Paul states. It's a powerful statement. He adds to that and says in 5, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet there is one God and Father of whom are all things. We for him, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So Paul gives something of a concession here, which he's going to touch on later in chapter 10, but basically say, Okay, even if there is anything behind these so-called gods, Anubis doesn't exist, but in the name of Anubis, you see some power in the world. He's going to say, all that stuff is just demonic anyway. It's not really Anubis. And it's not deity. It is another created being because there's only one creator. Satan and his angels are creations. They're not deities. They're not gods. And all the so-called gods and lords out there, the so-called gods that people have created, the human beings that claim that they're lords, like Pharaoh being God or so many others claiming to be gods, he says, even if there is anything behind these so-called things, it's demonic. And even that thing is not deity. It's just a created thing. There is one creator, one true God, who's different than every other false thing out there. And there are powers out there. There's supernatural powers and beings. The Bible confesses to that, admits it. Uh, Watchman Nee in his book, Sit, Walk, Stand, tells a story where him and six other men were going on a trip to one of these islands south of China. It was a little more primitive, and they're going to share the gospel. And they brought along with them to make it seven in the group at last minute this high school kid who was 16. He actually got expelled from school, but he got saved then, had kind of a radical life change. So he wasn't really sure about bringing this kid, but they bring him anyway. And they're sharing the gospel in this village. And the kid finally says it was pretty hard. Nobody's really listening to them. How come nobody here will believe? And they said, well, we already have a God. And they named their God. And they said, he's a very effective God. And every year we worship him at a festival on this particular day. And we ask our diviners to tell us what day to have the festival. And for 286 years, it has never rained on that day. And the 16-year-old kid said, oh, yeah? Well, our God's a real God, and it's going to rain this time. And then the other guys ran over to watch me near and they're like, you should, you should hear what he's saying over there. So they got him over, and they were like, Ooh, you know, like, did we just set something up that we shouldn't have set up? He said they were stressing, they were praying. And he said the Lord spoke to him and said, no, I'm going to take care of this. He said the day came. It was bright and sunny in the morning. They start getting everything ready. They put their little God on a couch, and they're about to walk him through the town. And he said it starts pouring rain. They try to press through. The God falls off the couch. He breaks. He said they did some repairs, put their God back on the couch, tried to carry him through again. 
had to stop the whole thing. Then they said, we got the day wrong, divided it again, different day. It rained on that day. And the guy, a number of people got saved. Right? The, the thing is that there was power there. The people could say, our God is an effective God. There, there are supernatural powers in the world. But none of those things are deity, even if they're there. There's only one true God. And he's the creator of heaven and earth. And these people, many of them still feared supernatural powers. They had experienced effective gods in various ways. They were scared, many of them, of those things. You can go other places in the world. We've been on mission trips, places where people don't want to mess with the witch doctor down the street or because they've seen things that cause them to fear. Oh, Paul would write to the Colossians, and he'd say, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Oh, but Jesus Christ did something different. He delivered from all the powers of darkness. They're there. But what Paul says is, they're not true gods. There's only one God. And he's ruling and reigning. And when he looks around from the throne of the universe, he's not insecure. He's not, he's not seeing any competition out there in the world. The distance between Satan as a created being and a moth is pretty huge, but it is still a measurable distance. The distance between Satan and God is immeasurable. One is uncreated and one is creation. One is exalted and forever different. The other is just something made up out of his own will. It's a being that is under his power and control 24-7. And Paul says, hey, for us, there's one God, notice, the Father. It's a beautiful thing to connect to that one God. Of whom are all things, and we for him. One Lord, Jesus Christ, throwing that word Lord in there makes Jesus divinity. And Paul doesn't have to say there's, worry about saying there's one God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He states that clearly. Through whom are all things, the Father created through the Son, John 1, 3, Ephesians 3, 9, Colossians 1, 16, Hebrews 1, 2. That's why he can be given the divine title of Lord. Nothing was created without him. Jesus wasn't created first and then make everything else. There was nothing, and Jesus was there with the nothing. And then he created. He's the divine word. The Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus being Savior. Name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Our creator is our father and our savior, the one true God in the world. A father who loves us when he made creation. He didn't just throw man into the world, have him floating in nothingness until he could make some land and ocean and some light for him to walk around. No, he created an entire world, differentiated all these different things, made it beautiful, then put him in there. 
to show the fatherly provision and love that he had for him. We for him, the purpose he wanted to show, the love, the care. And we have, because the creator is so different than the creation, we have no idea what it is to call something out of nothing and to care for that thing. No human being does that. We just mess with the stuff that's already in existence. Scientists think they can create stuff. I heard somebody say, scientists challenge God. Like, we can create too. We just need a little dirt, and God said, get your own dirt. Right? Like, what all humans do is mess with the stuff that he already created. No, we don't create anything. He's the creator. And to call us into existence and then sustain us at every single, we would go back to nothingness the minute he stops sustaining us. What type of love and care that is, and the Bible says his thoughts are more toward us than the sand on the shore, is true. And he says that one God, one creator, he's your father, guys. He's your Lord and Savior, the anointed one, Jesus Christ. All these other things, they're not even in existence. And the powers you see, they're not divine. That exists in him alone. That's knowledge that we have. It's true. It's beautiful. Now, he'll say, however, here's what they had forgotten. There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Paul points out the problem here. You guys are fighting about whether you can do this or not. He says, some people, you're defending yourself. Well, we have this knowledge. Idols don't even exist. It doesn't matter if we eat this food or sit in their place. Zeus isn't there. And and what Paul's saying is, yeah, we know that. But here's what you forgot. Not everybody knows that in a way that they can hold to in faith. Because when some people are eating, notice he says, they eat with consciousness of that idol. They're not eating with consciousness of God and of his power and of his reality as the creator and as their non-reality. We, like I said, I think it's hard for us to understand what some of these people had gone through worshiping these gods or what they had even given. They might have offered their children to these gods. They had offered lives to these gods. They had seen various supernatural things. And now they get pulled out of that. They have the Holy Spirit. They're believing in Christ. But it's still hard for them to go back and connect. And some of the people are like, it's fine, just go ahead. And Paul's saying, can't you see your brother and sister in Christ? They're eating with consciousness of that idol. Their consciences are weak and they become defiled. You say you know everything, but can't you see that they don't have that same knowledge that you do? How come you're not aware of what's going on in their lives? And it was important for them not to just respond, certainly, based on the conscience of another person, but for a less mature person to see a more mature person in Christ doing something. There's pressure there to think you should be able to do the same. Certainly, though, we need to live in light of our own conscience. We looked at Romans 14, 23. Paul would say, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. 
Whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you think it could if you think it's wrong or it could be wrong, it's a sin for you just to jump into that thing. If you see Pastor Mike walking into a movie, but you're like, I shouldn't see that movie. That would be wrong. I don't even go to the movies. I just sit at home and watch it free when it comes on TV. Does anybody go to the movies in here? But so the right like but I'm just this is an example okay you see he's he's a pastor he's supposed to be an example to our lives Peter says that right he's spiritually mature then it must be okay and but your conscience is like you shouldn't go see that there's trash in that movie and you just press through anyway one day when you stand before God in heaven and he's like did you feel like you should have seen that movie and you're like no he's like why did you see it and you're like well pastor Mike did it right like that's not going to help you. So you, you need to be able to live with a free conscience before the Lord, irrespective of what other Christians are doing. That's, that's true. I say that. But Paul's point here is toward the more mature person who's claiming that knowledge, claiming that they have the freedom to do what they want, irrespective of how that affects those around them. And what Paul is saying is, if you think that's okay, you're not walking in love and you don't have the knowledge you say you have. And that knowledge is puffing you up and it's not building up others. So verse 9, now he gets to it straight. But beware, this is a warning, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Like, is that how you want your knowledge to be used? It's a question. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, Paul gets to the main issue. He admits, okay, your knowledge about idols and food is good. Idols don't exist is true. Any power behind them is demonic. Food doesn't make a person better. He stated that clearly. It doesn't make a person worse. It's neutral. It's how you relate to it that makes the difference. And what Paul says then is your attitude toward your weaker brethren is the problem. Your knowledge not of idols and meat is the problem. Your knowledge of what Christian life is supposed to look like toward other people and how your liberties or rights as a believer can be expressed, that's where your knowledge is failing you. And he gives a pretty crazy warning here. He admits that they had liberty, but warns that their liberty can become, notice, a stumbling block. It could cause a weaker brother to perish, make a shipwreck of their faith. Could be a sin against the brethren. Could be a wound. Could be a sin against Christ. That's a, that's a pretty serious warning there that Paul's thrown out. It's, he's not playing around right here. This is... You wouldn't think that if Paul said this thing, you just have to imagine the person who's sitting there thinking all I'm doing is eating some chicken wings 
that Zeus didn't want, you know, like how you getting a little serious here, Paul. But Paul is serious because they're not seeing again what God wants in this scenario. They're just working off the facts for their own rights. And they are totally missing what they're doing toward others. Our rights can never be exercised in love without regard to those around us. As a Christian, I never live or act alone. Never. I'm not given the right to be an independent contractor in the body of Christ. I receive his spirit, and everything I do has to be in relation to the other people I'm connected with for all eternity, particularly the people that God put me around, right here, right now in the world, that live near me, that I'm connected to. All of my life matters to God and to those around me. You'll notice Paul will use the word brother or brethren four times just in 11 through 12. The weak brother perish, sin against the brethren, therefore don't make your brother stumble. I won't eat anything unless I make my brother stumble. He uses brother and brethren all through this. There's a family dynamic in the body of Christ that's supposed to be recognized. I'm supposed to not just have an expression of rights, but a brotherly love toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul says, your knowledge is causing you to miss out on that. He says, serving as a warning here. The issue is not eating meat or not eating meat. The issue is the loveless or prideful harming or destruction of another's faith for whom Christ died. That's, that's what the issue is. And for Paul, that's a big issue. Does our knowledge or liberty harm or destroy others? Have our loveless actions wounded a brother or sister in Christ? Again, for them, it was this scenario. Right? What he's saying is, if anyone, verse 10, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Hey, this, this is their scenario. What if they see you doing this? What if this is the example you're setting? You say you have more knowledge than them? Maybe you do. But is that knowledge being used in a way that edifies them? Is this where you want to encourage them? Is this where you want to build them up? And that might not be our scenario, but you can just think as a Christian, you can lead this into any other, we're not maybe dealing with meat sacrifice idols, but any other place, you think of what liberties Christians have in regard to social media, hanging out at the bar, right? Social drinking scene, the gym, bodily worship, theological talk, entertainment, any of these arenas where you might think personally, okay, maybe I can enter in this arena and I don't get defiled or something. But how many people began doing well with the Lord and then got connected with a group of more mature Christians whose knowledge led them into arenas like the press or, again, social media or a group of friends or, you know, you're a businessman, maybe you could... Go hang out with the other businessmen. You're traveling places. Sit at the bar with them. 
just order one drink and have your meal, but then another Christian comes at work, they're not as mature as you, they're the scene with you, they can't handle it quite as well. And where does their life go? How many believers have we seen their life go off track because they've got connected with another believer who knows a little bit more than them, but that knowledge has not been used to edify, their connection with your life has actually led them away from the Lord. It's caused them to wound their conscience. This is pretty serious. Now, we think about this in other, like, it can be, you know, again, you can be like, man, this seems kind of like legalistic. No, but for Paul, it's realistic. And we can see this very clearly with our own children. All, all of us, if you're a Christian parent, there are plenty of things. There's plenty of entertainment, music, discussions me and my wife won't have around our children. Because we know they are not mature enough to handle these things. But somehow, when we transfer that to like spiritual realms, we think it's not as important. I think because we can look at another person, maybe they're even older than us, but in Christ, they're not older than us. In Christ, they might be a young person. And what they need also is nurture. And what Paul says is, if because you have knowledge and you think you have a right to go eat at this place, and what happens is you cause that other believer in Corinth to wound their own conscience, you cause them to harden their own conscience, to go against their own conscience. You, you edify them in doing things that sear their conscience. You are putting literal distance between them and God. That's a dangerous thing. Paul says God sees this scenario way different than you do. That's the problem. Your knowledge has puffed you up. And love would be edifying them. But what's happening here is not edification. These people are not being built up. In fact, it's the very opposite. They're being wounded. They're not only being uh, wounded, but their weak conscience is causing them, he uses the word perish. It's destruction. It's being, their faith is being turned into rubble. Unfortunately, in some scenarios, all of us, if you live with the Lord, can probably look back at certain individuals and people and think, man, like I didn't know they would take things like that or go that direction with them. And I wish I had been a different type of influence in that life. And hopefully when that happens, we learn a little bit better and say, I got to be a little more careful about the things I talk about, the things I put in front of people, the things that people see in me. I have to be more caring toward brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly those who might not know quite as much as you or might see you as an example. And we can act like somehow that's a big cost in our lives. But for Paul, it's very clear. He says, verse 11 again, shall, because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish? Notice, for whom Christ died? Christ paid the ultimate person, uh, ultimate price for this person. He's like, you can't like give up a meal or a movie. He's <laughs> not asking you to sacrifice your life for this person. Just don't invite him to Zeus's restaurant. 
you know you're going to stumble him. That Christ died for this individual. And he says in another stern warning, notice verse 12, when you thus sin against the brethren, Paul says it clear, this is a sin. It's an act of selfishness or pride. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, he goes even further, you sin against Christ. He says that doesn't just hurt the individual, it hurts Christ who died for that individual. It's not just a sin against them. It's a sin against Christ. And it's a mature thing to fear wounding another brother or sister in Christ. Better, better we fear that than we fear missing out on some little pleasure of our lives. Right? That's what Paul's saying. He's like, you guys got this so wrong. That's why he started with the love. You're, you're just thinking about this in totally immature ways. You think you know, but you don't. If you were known of God, it would look a lot differently. Don't allow your knowledge to be something that tears people down. It should be something that builds them up. And again, I don't think Paul is saying this because he doesn't care about these believers. I, I believe 100% he's saying this because he does care about them. This is a warning. He's telling them to beware. Very likely it's already happening, and he's just encouraging, don't let this go further. See this. Let it be the Lord showing you this in your life so that you can now respond correctly. And I believe Paul, in personal experience, knew it. I don't know if he ever got that voice out of his head. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't just hurt Christians. Paul learned, when I sin against my brethren, I sin against Christ. He knew that. He had Jesus ask him that question directly. I, that would wake all of us up if we were in that scenario. And Jesus showed up and said, why are you sinning against me? Not just your brothers or sisters in Christ, against me. And that's why Paul would say, I don't think he's being bombastic here. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. He's not just being dramatic. His whole point is, I am going to fear way more being a part of a brother stumbling than missing out on a steak. I can always catch up on the steak. But if I make a brother stumble, that's serious. And this is a mature way to look at some of these things. Again, for us, it's a challenge because you and I, we're not going to be, again, in that particular scenario of expressing our liberty in going to a Zeus's temple giant or acme or something like that. But we do all get placed in scenarios where because you have knowledge in Christ of what certain freedoms are. If somebody just came to you and said, hey, man, you can't do that, you would immediately rattle off verses why you can, right? But what Paul is saying here is, no, 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 there's something more. And it's pretty serious. If you want to pursue knowledge, you can do that, but you need to know that the real danger of knowledge is knowledge puffs up. 
but love will build up. What about the people in connection to your life? Are they being built up? You think you know? Maybe you're in a group of people that feel like they know. You have a bunch of other people that would tell you you know, and you would tell them they know. He says, you probably don't know what you think you know. And if God saw all of you and said what was true of you, would you be known of him? Would he be in the know? Those who love God, he knows them. And we can know our facts, but if our actions cause a brother to stumble, we sin against them, and we sin against Christ. And it's a powerful thing, not only to the literal witness of the existence of God, but also in a world of brokenness to have a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ who actually care about one another and think about one another and think about one another more than their own liberties and are willing to be loving and thoughtful toward those around them. That's a true act of God. And it's a blessing and it's a powerful thing to be a part of and to walk into. And if you need help with that, God will direct you. He will teach you what that needs to look like in your life. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are there. We thank you that you are the one true and only God. And we thank you that you're our Father and our Savior, that we are for you. And I pray, I pray our lives will be for you in the right way. Lord, I pray for myself as a pastor here that I would be the example that you would have me to be with genuine, sincere love of the brethren. And Lord, I pray that that would be true of our entire fellowship and that anybody who enters into that fellowship would recognize it. I pray what Paul prayed, that you would cause our love to increase and abound toward one another and toward all men, that our hearts could be unblameable in holiness before you when you come with all the saints. So guide us, Lord, where we need it, instruct us where we need it, and give us the freedom, Lord, to follow you, to love you, and to love others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.